0: Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Lott, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Before getting into our interview today, I would ask that if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as support the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, to please go to our website, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red donate button. We thank you in advance for your generosity. This is part two of my interview with NCBC Executive Vice President John Burhaney regarding the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's December 2022 revised messaging on Plan B. In part one, John discussed what Plan B is and the role it plays in sexual assault protocols. He then reviewed the rationale for the FDA's new messaging and raised important concerns about the organization's claim that Plan B has no post-fertilization mechanism. In this interview, John discusses, among other things, practical and political implications of the FDA's action, including its impact on state laws regarding sexual assault protocols. He also addresses how the FDA's revised messaging on Plan B may impact Catholic health care, as well as debates concerning other controversial medications, such as ELLA. John welcome back to Bioethics On Air for part two of our interview.
1: Well, thank you very much. Always good to be here.
0: Great to have you back. So, as we discussed in part one, uh, the FDA has recently stated that Plan B has no post-fertilization mechanism. I mentioned that in the intro. And it also stated that it is not an abortifacient. Now the FDA made this change in messaging, and also on its uh, Plan B drug facts label, it made this change on December 23rd of 2022. First off, John, why do you think the FDA announced this big change right before Christmas?
1: Well, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I think the the added detail we ought to provide is that was Friday, twenty third. Oh, really. Christmas was on Sunday. Uh, you know, I somebody contacted me for comment. I ended up talking to them on Christmas Eve. Now, normally, I would say, when someone in Washington, D.C. releases something on a Friday afternoon or evening before Christmas, it's because they want to bury it, basically. They don't want people to talk about it. Uh, they, you know, anyway, uh, I don't think... Uh, that that was the FDA's goal. Um, I get the impression and uh, the FDA would say, well, read our official explanation. It's all there in in sort of you know, rather soothing uh, bureaucraties. Speak. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, it's all there in black and white. But, you know, the impression I get is that they were trying to get this done and let's just say get it done before the end of the year. Uh now why would they want to get it done before uh, the end of the year? And uh, I mean, again, just to, to step back a bit, uh, there's a sense in which people have wanted the FDA to do something like this for years. In fact, right. in 2012, there was uh, you know, a, a somewhat a famous or notorious article in the New York Times taking the FDA to task, saying, "Why do you have this language? Uh, about implantation, and you know, and and some sort of post-fertilization effect. You know, the studies are clear. We all know this isn't true. Uh, well, that's ten years, and yet uh, twice the FDA refused to change its position. Now that was two thousand six and twenty ten. I think another company uh, had bought them out uh, bought out the brand and, and they didn't change it. So why, why December 23rd, uh, of 2022 on a Friday afternoon? And, you know, we may never hear, uh, the motive in their heart of hearts, but I'll tell you, it's interesting. If you go six months earlier, there was a flurry of news stories starting early June, 2022, saying effectively, oh my gosh, uh, because somebody leaked the memo uh, about the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs, it sure sounds like the Supreme Court's going to overturn Roe v. Wade. What will happen if they do? Um, Somebody better take some action here or states are going to start you know, restricting, perhaps ending the use uh, of plan B. Somebody ought to talk to the FDA. This company ought to, you know, get their language together. Of course, nobody would comment. But all of a sudden, you know, the Friday uh, before Christmas, December 23rd, the FDA brings this out. So I would say uh, it sure looks to me, there's some reason to believe, that they were trying to get something done before the end of the year, perhaps in response to this pressure. And the unfortunate thing is, uh, it's not that we should mind the FDA trying to, to clarify some of these very complex matters. Um, however, in doing it on this timeline, uh, well, I think it's clear they didn't resolve all the questions about, about how Plan B may well work. And, um, and because they didn't, uh, there are still good questions out there, but it looks like they wanted to finish something off and get it done and maybe prevent what they would consider some damage, you know, limitations on plan B and, and maybe to help some people out who were saying, you know, Hey, we need some help here. And you're. Your FDA language uh, from the drug label is not helping.
0: Yeah, yeah, it could be. So, in in light of all of this, I'm wondering, John, if you could talk to us a bit about uh, what you think some of the political consequences of the FDA's decision will be.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and as I said, uh, you know the sort of pro-abortion side of this or the reproductive rights side of this thing, they would say, well, our great fear is that uh, somehow plan B will be restricted. I would say the more likely political consequences that we will see is that people will work very strongly, very swiftly to increase uh, access to Plan B, to increase utilization uh, of Plan B, and, and that will play out in the political arena. Um, you know, there are some states, not a lot, but some that have what I would describe as a demand to dispense law on the books. I know the right. state of Connecticut was the first to pass this in 2007, I believe, that essentially says if a woman presents in the ER, she says she's sexually assaulted, you must provide plan B uh, on demand, no delay, no testing, no nothing. And so I think one of the immediate consequences uh, will be state efforts to, um, well, to increase laws like that, uh, to do away with any limitations uh, that exist on the use of Plan B, I guess, yeah, to put it frankly.
0: Yeah, no, so you, you mentioned sexual assault, and, and we talked about it a little bit in the in part one of the podcast as well, too. And I'm wondering if we could speak a little bit more to that. Um, specifically, John, how do you think the FDA's action may impact state laws regarding sexual assault protocols?
1: Well, I think the most the most immediate impact that that I I see and that I fear uh, is that, and I think these would tend to be maybe red states, more conservative states, that there will be pressure in the legislature to pass a law about Plan B that essentially says, um, again, if a woman presents. Um, you have to provide her some information. Uh, you can do a pregnancy test. Now, a pregnancy test will not detect a pregnancy or, let's just say, the presence of a new human life Correct. Uh, that results from the sexual assault itself. You, uh, A pregnancy test, really, at its earliest, wouldn't detect a, a pregnancy, I think, for close to two weeks, actually after conception, uh, might be 10 to 14 days plus. So uh, doing a pregnancy, a woman says I was raped last night. Uh, state law often allows a pregnancy test, but you know, uh, she might be pregnant already. Um, but that's not what we're worried about. I would say that if she is already pregnant, a month pregnant, two months pregnant, something, the plan B is not going to end her pregnancy or really affect it, but they'll, they'll let people do a pregnancy test and then say, now you have to dispense. Uh, the state of Louisiana passed just such a law last July. And unfortunately, uh, that's what the law said, essentially dispense on victim request after a negative pregnancy test. Uh, the language is shall, so there's no provision in the law for anybody uh, to say, hey, wait a minute, when are we giving it? Is it going to do what we think it is? Might it do something we don't want it to do? There's no provision for that. Um, So that was passed in July, took effect after January 1st. I looked around and I saw that uh, the state of Missouri currently has two Bills in the Missouri legislature. Missouri is kind of a red state, very much I would say a pro-life state, and they've got two different bills that essentially say the same thing. They're going to be dispense on demand. I think we're a little early in the game. In other words, uh, you know, the FDA action didn't come till December twenty-third, and um, you know, maybe state legislative terms are just beginning. Uh, So I think we may well see more of these bills and hopefully not laws in the future.
0: So with these bills that are being, like you mentioned, Louisiana and, and possibly in Missouri and in other places as well, what with those in mind, what impact could the FDA's decision on Plan B have specifically on Catholic hospitals and their clinicians?
1: Yeah, good question. I think, and let's just take a step back from the political legislative arena for a second here. Um, I would say, uh, it's kind of a mixed bag out there. Um, or I, I should say there, there are a variety of practices, uh, in Catholic hospitals when it comes to whether and how they provide plan B after sexual assault, not every Catholic hospital, uh, addresses sexual assault in its Mm -hmm. ERs. Many do, but anyway, not all. And then of the ones that do, and I've not really been able to, uh, to put a number on this, if you will, or to find any percentage, but you know, how many do some sort of testing, uh, prior to administering plan B and, and how many do not, I, I think probably the, the majority do not do any additional Mm -hmm. testing and some do. Well, I think that, um, you know, what the FDA decision could do is for the ones that are on the, you might say on the fence or on the line, they might say, well, we've been doing this extra testing. But now that the FDA told us very clearly that this is not, not, not an abortion drug, not even an abortifacient drug, it only does one thing, it only prevents ovulation. Hey, uh, we can relax, you know, we can cut one, you know, hoop. Uh, out of the process. We can make this more efficient. Uh, so, so they might think that. And I think there might be a danger. And this is a controversial topic. And, and it's uh, it's maybe a tough decision to make. I talked to uh, a doctor in a hospital who, who does testing. And they said, man, you know, it, it can be tense, if you will. It's kind of a hard decision when you have to tell a woman, you know, yes, you were sexually assaulted. Yes, we want to help you. This is not the time to give plan B. It almost sounds like you're denying her something, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that she wants or she thinks is going to help. It, of course, it turns out it, it's not going to do the good thing, uh, you know, supposedly uh, that it should do. But I wonder if some Catholic hospitals out there are going to say, hey, the FDA has settled this. You know, we can trust the FDA. Look at this big memo. Uh, They took 10 years to make this decision. And, uh, you know, we can follow the FDA with confidence. Uh, Even apart from, I guess, you know, whether they change their testing practice or not, uh, I don't think that's a... uh, a well-founded conclusion. We can trust the FDA. They've settled this. We can all move on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't want to necessarily go too deep into this, but but correct me if I'm wrong. This discussion about the mechanisms of Plan B or even other um, so-called emergency contraceptives, this has been this discussion has been going on for a while within Catholic healthcare. And there's a divergency of opinions. And you know, this this decision by the, or this remessaging by the FDA, as you said, certainly could embolden those who who would say, look, I mean, the FDA has settled the question. So there's, you know, there's no need for any kind of extra testing. I mean, this is, this is not a new issue for Catholic healthcare.
1: Yes. It's, um, well, it began to be debated in the early nineties. Uh, and there is a testing regimen out there called the Peoria Protocol. And I think it was published in uh, our, our monthly uh, ethics newsletter, Ethics and Medics, I think in the uh, 1993, 94, somewhere in there, um, the debate changed in a new way, I would say, right after 1999, uh, because that's when Plan B came in. It was a, right. instead again, instead of extra contraceptive pills or some different drug, it was a dedicated regimen uh, you know, of uh, levonorgestrel to try to prevent pregnancy. That that really led, I would say, to a ten to fifteen year debate. And and there are two large pieces to the debate, if you will. Uh, one huge piece of the debate, probably forty nine and a half percent, revolves around. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's always other little shades of things, but <laughs> one uh, one huge part of the debate really revolves around the biochemistry, uh, if you will, whether it's all of what goes on in a woman's uh, fertility cycle uh, and how do you know that and, and all kinds of things and the biochemistry of plan B. Mm-hmm. And and how does it work? And how do you know that? And how did you test it? And and what is it? Four things it can do, or three things, or one thing. So that that's a huge part of the debate. And then uh, another big chunk of the debate actually has nothing to do with biology per se. It has to do with moral certitude. It has to do with what's the standard um, when we have some doubt about the right course of action. Uh, Can we, uh, do we always have to uh, follow the strictest uh, opinion, if you will, or standard, I guess, on the one hand, um, you know, uh, do we have to make sure that we have absolute certitude that we're not doing something wrong? And if we can't have that, then we can't do anything. Um, Or is it, hey, as long as you're reasonably sure it's okay, if you will, or 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 there's somebody authoritative out there who says it's fine, can can you follow the the easiest uh, thing, if you will? And these are old tendencies in uh, Catholic moral theology that that go back to the. 1600s at least, if not a little before. And actually, as I describe these things, the strictest possible or the, the easiest possible, both those things uh, have been condemned by the popes. Uh, one's called rigorism and one is called laxism. And, um, and very much on this issue of plan B and sexual assault and female victims, the issue is what's the responsible thing to do?
0: Yeah. You know, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking of um, a Catholic or a healthcare professional who's Catholic or who is working in a Catholic healthcare facility who's hearing this, you know, these debates have been going on for 25, 30 years. The FDA has done what they've done in December of, of 2022, and, and their heads are probably spinning going, like, what What? The heck, like, what Like, am I supposed to do? So, John, what would you say? What should a Catholic hospital and or Catholic health care, healthcare professional be doing regarding this question of emergency contraception, particularly plan B with emergency contraception?
1: Yeah. I think that, um, you know, they, they should take that, you know, that they have to try to promote the good as much as possible. You know, the first rule in the moral life is to do good and avoid evil, you know, and I think uh, promoting and protecting the good, certainly can involve helping a victim of sexual assault to avoid conception as a result of that violent act. So, you know, uh, on the other hand, they have to avoid moral evil or harm, particularly serious moral evil and harm. That is, that they should take great care that they are not doing something that would end the life of a newly conceived human being, even a human being conceived as a result of rape. And someone might say, well, I mean, the odds of that are so low. You know, I mean, first of all, um, just pregnancy after sexual assault, I mean, the odds themselves, you might say, I've seen figures as high as 5%. Of course, it can depend on the age of the victim and and stuff. But pregnancy after sexual assault is rare. And then if you tell me that something's going to happen one in 100 times in in that rare thing, geez, the odds seem low. I mean, maybe we can just say the odds are low and move on. And uh, and I would say that, that that's not good enough. So the church gives us some guidance on this. In particular, you know, when you're in a dilemma or you're not clear of how to proceed, um, you know, someone who is intervening, uh, someone who is acting should have what's called moral certitude of, of, well, I would say of the good that he's trying to do and of the moral evil he's trying to avoid. Uh, there are different levels of certitude, uh, if you will. Um, you can have uh, what's called absolute certitude. You know, when you get into uh, abstract mathematical uh, proofs, uh, you know, Euclid's geometry. If you just follow all the, you know, the postulates and, and all those things, you can you can make a case, and it's mathematical. Uh, we cannot have such certitude in the real world. And so, uh, popes, uh, like Pius XII and John Paul II have said, well, you need to have moral certitude. And well, what does that mean? And they would say, well, you need to exclude any reasonable doubts. Uh, if you have reasonable doubt, you say, well, I want to do that, but there's a reasonable doubt that, you know, I I may well end up doing that morally wrong thing that I shouldn't do. If that's the case, you shouldn't do it. You you can seek clarity, you know, you can, you should seek greater certainty. Um, But again, the church would say you should, you you should not do moral evil, the good may come of it. And if you, if you cannot exclude that doubt, especially a reasonable doubt, I would say, then you shouldn't do it. So what I, Think that these, um, it's a combination of the institution itself and having a standard. And then, of course, the everyday clinicians, doctors, nurses, whomever, they say, I've got a victim and um, she's been sexually assaulted. And certainly uh, a standard practice is to use something like Plan B. Well, do we have any doubt? Uh, for example, that um, if it's going to prevent ovulation, you might ask, well, how do you know it's going to prevent ovulation? Uh, the FDA actually says that's the only thing it can do. Right. I mean, yep. that that's the evidence for what yep. it does. That's what they came down to in their decision. Yep. And yet we also know that the closer a woman is in her cycle to ovulation, the less effective Plan B is in stopping that until you get to two days, one day before ovulation, and it practically doesn't stop it at all. Now, what could they do? They could say, they could ask the victim, uh, are you um, on any other kind of uh, birth control? You know, some women uh, have Depo-Provera shots that last you know, three months, some women have been surgically sterilized. Mm-hmm. Uh, some women might be on the pill. Um, I would say there's, if, if they're on one of these types of birth control, the odds that they're ovulating at that time are, are very, very low. Um, they might look at the age, you know, there might be a, a 50 year old woman, you know, uh, it's not this, I mean, there's some remote possibility of fertility there, but most women cease regular uh, cycles, you know, by that age, but they can do some questions. And um, ideally they would say, yeah, we know that we're giving this when it can prevent ovulation. And, And now there's the flip side, which is, but is there any doubt that it may do something wrong. In other words, would we be giving plan B at a time when we know it can't prevent ovulation? And we discussed this uh, in part one, but when it, man, it seems to be very effective at preventing pregnancies. And again, the interesting thing is if you give it the day of ovulation or the day after ovulation, Actually, plan B appears to do nothing at all on average. In other words, if a woman was going to get pregnant, plan B isn't going to stop that. But given two days to one day before ovulation, what we seem to know from the best study there is, is that it fails to prevent ovulation, but it completely prevents pregnancy. That seems like a very serious doubt. And I would say that Catholic institutions and healthcare professionals, whether they're Catholic or employed at Catholic institutions, should not give plan B precisely at that time. It can't do the good thing we want it to do. And there's a reasonable doubt. There, There's some reason to believe it would do something we shouldn't be doing. So that's what I would say.
0: Yeah. And John, you, uh, just to uh, kind of recap a little bit, you you spoke about the, uh, the church's teaching about uh, on sexual assault ERD 36 uh, in our previous podcast. So for those who may have um, not heard that, you might want to go back and listen to that, or you could just get the, your copy of the Ethical and Religious Directives and read Directive 36, which, which basically states... Um, or summarizes what John had said.
1: If you I, want, uh, do you want me to read again just the sentence? Could uh, that read be the, help?
0: Read the read the read the money line. Just just the money line.
1: Um, it says, um, if after appropriate testing with regard to a female victim of sexual assault, there is no evidence conception has occurred, she, the victim, may be treated with medications that would prevent ovulation, sperm capacitation, or fertilization, it is not permissible, however, to initiate or recommend treatments that have as their purpose or direct effect the removal, destruction, or interference with the implantation of a fertilized ovum. That's a human embryo. I I don't like that term, fertilized ovum. It's it's a human embryo. So, and the interesting thing now... (laughs) that directive was written in, well, it was approved in 1994. It's almost 30 years old. And actually, one thing we know as a result of the FDA reviewing the evidence is that Plan B uh, does nothing uh, to address sperm capacitation. Um, And in fact, it won't prevent fertilization, especially if it's given on or after the day of ovulation, they put all the emphasis on preventing ovulation uh, right. again, uh, which it it loses that effectiveness over time. you know right. so then it comes down to is the plan be doing something to interfere with the implantation, you know the coming to be uh, of a new human being? There's certainly evidence that suggests it does. And nobody has presented any evidence that said, oh, no, you know, let us show how it is not doing that. And it's it's a very mysterious area of biology. And now we're back to what do you do with doubt? Right. Well, make sure you're not doing moral evil. You know what I mean? That's uh That's very important. And um, anyway. Yeah.
0: So, John, a a somewhat different but closely related question. Um, Pro life supporters are concerned that the FDA's recent actions regarding Plan B may signal a similar change regarding another medication, Ella. So, as one of you tell us briefly, what is Ella? And what's the concern that that pro-life supporters would have with it?
1: Yeah, so uh, so Plan B, I said way back at the beginning of Part One, is a synthetic hormone uh, made up of one called levonorgestrel. Um, so it, you know, it's got a certain chemical makeup. Ella, uh, again, made up of a drug called yohprostol acetate. It's got a tougher name. <laughs> Um, it's a drug I think that was used for years to treat cancer and some other conditions, but it's a very different type of drug. So I don't know if people know this, but there are actually lots of different, uh, contraceptive pills on the market. So we sometimes talk about the pill as if there was just this one right. thing. But there are many formulations of it. It comes down to synthetic estrogens and progesterones. Uh, it's it's synthetic chemicals of those two things. Ulipristal acetate is an entirely different class of drugs. Uh, somebody described it as a kind of a chemical cousin to RU486. And what it is, is um, it's a progesterone receptor blocker. So it's something basically that blocks the action of the natural hormone progesterone, which a woman's body produces. It blocks that hormone in human cells. Now, when is progesterone? acting on human cells in a very important way and it turns out it is right in fact as a woman's body detects that a newly conceived human being is there immediately after ovulation basically her body starts to produce progesterone and again if when her body detects a newly conceived human being it produces even more and of course, we know that that new human embryo is going to want to implant in the womb or the uterus and grow. It needs blood, you know, it needs it needs those nutrients. And yolipristal acetate, and the brand name is Ella, will actually undermine the effects of progesterone on those very important cells. So going back, I suppose, 15 or 20 years, people began to say, hey, this, this would make a very effective drug, a so-called morning-after pill kind of a drug to use to help women who had sexual intercourse, who you know didn't use any kind of contraception or, or something. It would help them not to get pregnant. So that's what Ella is, uh, and that's the hope. Uh, it's, it's a very different kind of a drug. Uh, the FDA approved it for use for emergency contraception. I think, again, it was 2011 or 13. It's one of those uh, odd years. And I'll tell you, there's been a lot of dissatisfaction with Plan B. On the one hand, you know, the FDA just had a whole memo. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of support for it. But a lot of women know and a lot of doctors know Let's just say the overall average effectiveness of plan B, if you, you know, averaged it all out, let's just say it's 70% effective, 70 to 80% effective. Um, That's a a gross average. It's not 90 or 95 or 99% effective. It just is not. Ella is much more effective. And when people take Ella, they they are pregnant at a much lower rate than when they take plan B. So why, why, would, um, why would we think there's any link between the two or why would people be concerned? And, and the reason is this, and I've watched this in the literature. L is a different drug, but in the scientific literature, there's been a lot of effort to get across the point. Oh, this works just like plan B. This prevents ovulation. Uh, And it can, I I will say, it's true that it can. Now, it can do some other things too. And just like uh, plan B, if it's given the day or so before ovulation, even Ella can't stop it. So the human body is pretty powerful that way. But but again, the scientific uh, chatter, if you will, in the literature is, oh, it prevents ovulation. Oh, it prevents ovulation. You don't have to worry about abortion or abortifacient side effects. It just works by preventing ovulation. And I can see that once they get plan B, you might say nailed down here, the pressure will be on to add an even more powerful drug, uh, and then to say, it's just like plan B. And and we just said, and you believed us, <laughs> it's all about ovulation. Stop thinking. Right. Stop worrying. Move on. And uh, L is a very different drug. We've even heard, as you know, you and I have encountered some Catholic hospitals that say they use it, uh, and we've encountered some that said, oh, I don't know, we read, we read the summary of the scientific literature and it, it said it's just the same thing. So, you know, anyway, that's the concern.
0: Yeah. Hmm. It just never ends. But I guess I, I keep this employed. Yeah. So, John, one final um, different but again related topic I'd like to get your your take on before we close. So. The FDA also recently finalized a change that it had initiated back in December of 2021 regarding the chemical abortion drug mifepristone. So the FDA has announced that uh, mifepristone and, and by extension, chemical abortion, is now available to women without an inpatient doctor visit, and it will be available in retail pharmacies such as Walgreens, CVS, and and just uh, the day that we're recording this podcast, I heard Rite Aid is going to um, stock it as well. So now we Address the issue of chemical abortion in detail uh, in podcast number seventy-five. It's called "Straight Talk on Chemical Abortion," and I'll I'll put a link in the show notes for people. But can you comment on this recent development from the FDA regarding mifepristone?
1: Just just briefly, um, (laughs) this this drug regimen uh, actually has has. It, it, it's a two drug combo. Right. Mifepristone is one piece of it, and and like I had said before, Ella is a chemical cousin. Uh, I think RU forty six was the brand name or an earlier brand name of mm-hmm. mifepristone. Right. One thing it does, I I think even more effectively than than Ella, it disrupts the the blood supply uh, to that human embryo in the womb. You know, right. it, it cuts it off by interfering with the action of progesterone. And then misoprostol is a separate drug that induces um, uh, muscle contractions. It's almost your know, labor pains or labor is not the right way, but it, it helps the muscles essentially to, uh, to uh, push out you know uh, anything that's there, so these are are very powerful drugs. Uh, I think we'd say first and foremost, uh, they are they constitute direct chemical abortions. I mean, morally, ethically speaking, you know, again, Plan B and trying to do something, you know, in sexual assault that maybe helps to interfere with conception, but doesn't actually harm a newly conceived human being it's very complex this this is you know yeah. this is like a a, a big gun <laughs> that you bring and point right at a developing human being and say we're going to we're going to bring all this to on you so it's utterly um utterly immoral uh, it's a direct chemical abortion um beyond that it is profoundly uh, dangerous uh, and imprudent to do this because the early days, two things. The early days of pregnancy can be very complex. A fair percentage of women suffer from ectopic pregnancies. It's a very dangerous condition. Um, mifepristone and misoprostol actually will not help with an ectopic pregnancy. Right. Whole different physiology, I won't get into it. They won't work with that. A woman might think she's pregnant and she might be with an ectopic pregnancy. She thinks she'll get it over easily by going to uh, the the local drugstore and and she could end up very, very badly hurt. So that, I mean, women really need to be seen uh, by doctors, by OBGYNs. And this effort to make chemical abortion more accessible, easier, faster, does a profound disservice to women who need good medical care. I, and I hate to say even if they want to have an abortion, that but they need good medical care, and, and they are literally cutting doctors out of the picture. The second thing, as you know, you know, any drug, practically any good thing can be abused. And in this case, um, this two drug combo works better the earlier it's given you mm-hmm. know the the more time goes on i I think the ideal time frame, at least in terms of the official science is like three, maybe four weeks after conception um something along those lines. I mean, don't quote me on it, but what is? you know, what's, what's a human tendency? It's to, you know, sometimes delay, sometimes not get around to something, get around to getting something done. And sometimes saying, well, what I really, you know, I don't want to go to an abortion clinic. Uh, It's been actually some weeks, you know, since I, I missed my last period, but I'm still going to try this easy route. I'm going to try the chemical route, right. And see what happens. And this is where things get positively dangerous because the longer women wait, the less effective these drugs are, they will not end the pregnancy. And in fact, they may cause serious problems like excessive bleeding. Um, and this can be very, very dangerous. You and I did a, an ethics case, you know, uh, it had to do with an ER situation in which this, uh, uh, person came into the hospital and bleeding terribly. I mean, was in really bad shape. And here she had taken these drugs, you know, six, seven weeks into her pregnancy. Uh, There is some data, I know I saw this in a document that the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops just put out a year or so ago, where 17 states provide records uh, on Medicaid patients. and especially data on emergency room care within 30 days of an abortion. And anyway, they found that in the year 2015, for women undergoing a chemical abortion in the last 30 days, 354 out of 1000 had to go to the ER. In other words, More than one in three women undergoing a chemical abortion in this in these Medicaid uh, state data went into the ER. That's a huge percentage. And you're going to get that when women delay, you know, they say anyway. So there's uh, certainly a moral fault there that is through the roof. um, But there are practical dangers and it is no service to women for someone like our government or like these uh or the pharmaceutical companies or the drugstores, stores uh to say yeah we're going to help you out we're going to give you this powerful drug <laughs> no doctor no questions no delay very little right uh, by way of true education and informed consent and it's a recipe uh for real danger
0: yeah just uh to, to uh to reinforce what you said. And, and I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think mifepristone right now is approved up to 70 days um, by the Food and Drug Administration. So, so I believe it's 10 weeks pregnancy, although that's being pushed by the abortion industry. And our, our friends at Charlotte Lozier have stated that, uh, their information, they put out that complications from chemical abortion are four times higher than that from... Uh, surgical abortion. So yeah, there's lots of issues. And and the podcast that people can listen to can say it. John, I just wanted to, um, before I just ask you the last question, or just uh, for our audience, just to be clear about the moral issues between Plan B or Ella and Mifepristone. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I just want to clarify. So the, the, the jury is still out in terms of Plan B and Ella in terms of, okay, so the FDA will say that it, it prevents, they prevent ovulation, but the jury's still out in terms of do they prevent implantation. Whereas with mifepristone, that is post-implantation. So that that's 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 how it's being used. So, so just to clarify that for, for yeah, listening. well,
1: and and it's complicated, but yeah, let let's clarify. Uh, especially the last point you made: mifepristone plus misoprostol, misoprostol. are designed to end a pregnancy that it ha- that is ongoing that has begun implantation has taken place actually in growth. And yes, right. absolutely designed to do that. Uh, things, are, again, they're, they're complex when you get to Ella and Plan B. So let's say that um, I would say, uh, how would I put this? Um, well, let's start with what ideally both drugs do and the FDA d- FDA would say, well, ideally, there's evidence that they can suppress or delay ovulation. And I'd say that's true to a point. That's true unless they're given a day or two before ovulation. In that case, neither one will prevent ovulation or the overwhelming majority of the time, it will not prevent ovulation. The question after that is, what could they do? And I'll try to boil it down. First, plan B, I would say this if it doesn't prevent ovulation and it's given in that day or two before ovulation, the end result we know is it seems to prevent practically any pregnancy. Or in in a big study of women, none in that class became pregnant at all, and they would have expected 16 pregnancies. So, and and I've had it explained to me uh, by some good OBGYNs who say what it does is it just, it really interferes with and, and messes up the hormonal signals of the body. It messes up the LH signal, and then it messes up the progesterone signal. And somewhere in there, odds are you're still going to have some ovulations, conceptions, and yet zero pregnancies. And so something is happening in that sequence of hours and days that allows conception but does not allow a pregnancy to proceed. Uh, You know, that's a mouthful, but it's pretty complex. Ella, again, a day or two before ovulation cannot stop it but because it's a progesterone receptor blocker it appears that it is even more effective at interfering with those cells in the uterus and maybe and it has a it's just a stronger chemical it stays in the body longer and could have an effect on implantation even beyond what plan b would have so it's it's a little complicated but um you know if you keep its real name in mind yola crystal acetate you know it just sounds like a stronger chemical and it and it is it, it it has a different mechanism of action it stays in the body longer um it it has a more powerful effect so um and, of course, that's one reason that uh, people said we need something beyond Plan B. It just right. doesn't work well enough. And their goal, the goal of, I would say, uh, people on the other side of the debate from us is, as I try to capture it this way, they want to make sure that this woman does not end up pregnant. Right. You know, yeah. in in a week or two yep. weeks or four weeks or nine months, they th- this woman should not be pregnant. Whereas we would say well, look, we're sure going to try to prevent this woman from conceiving as a result of the rape, but we also want to make sure that if a child came into being, we're not doing something that that would end his or her life. I mean, we're close, uh, but but it's not the same. And if your goal is to make sure the woman isn't pregnant, you're willing to use more powerful drugs and you're willing to tolerate... uh, a range of of actions, just make sure she doesn't end up pregnant and and they would say that that's success and and we cannot,
0: yeah, we're up against it in terms of time for today, John. so you have've um, given us a lot of really good information over these two interviews. I was wondering if you could conclude um with some words of wisdom for our listeners. so John, what would you what would you like our our listeners to? take away from our interviews?
1: You know, um, our, our Catholic faith, I would say, is so broad and so deep and so powerful. Uh, if you look at, um, at the moral standards and the, and the moral goods that were given uh, because of Christ, which I, I sort of sometimes sum up as there, there's an ethic because of the goodness of creation, uh, and we know that all things were created through him and for him. Uh, and there's an ethic that comes through the cross, you know, that, that God loved us and he sent his son even when we were sinners. There's something that transcends, in other words, material goods, worldly goods, uh, you know, which we should always uh, protect and promote. It's a challenge to live that faith in many respects in this world. Uh it's easy to overlook uh, the poor and the vulnerable. And yet we know we are called to to really see the world in a new way through the eyes of faith and love according to a higher standard. And, you know, it's just, I, I would like to encourage that uh, for anyone dealing with this issue. Uh, you know, we, the church has always celebrated science and research as long as it's done in an ethical manner. But we have to see this issue through the eyes of faith and and not through worldly standards, you know, and that can include all kinds of ways to help and support women who have been sexually assaulted and to do everything ethically and clinically possible to prevent them from conceiving as a result of that violent act. And at the same time, we cannot write off, if you will, or overlook, or in a sense, fail to consider the good of new lives that might be conceived as a result of rape. And I think we we have to walk. Uh, that's a very narrow line to walk when you're handing out a drug in the ER. ERs are busy places. And And again, timing is critical with plan B. So, yeah, one thing I've been concerned, just because this issue has been so controversial over time and and can you use it or not, if the FDA says it's settled, are people just going to say, well, I guess it's settled. I guess we can all relax. I guess we can all all do what everybody else is doing and we don't (laughs) have to worry about being different. And I guess one message I've tried to send in, in, as you know, we're working on a statement and so on. The FDA didn't settle the issue. They didn't take the time to settle the issue. Uh, They could have, they should have, but we can't pretend that they did. There are good, I should say there are valid questions out there. There is doubt about what Plan B does uh, when it cannot prevent ovulation and we need to walk that line. So, um, yeah, we, we can't relax on this. We have to, I would say, Catholic ERs, professionals, w- we should try to improve the way that women are tested, assessed, treated, you name it. If, if the tests to do this aren't good now, improve them. People in healthcare do that all the time. Uh, and they need to bring the same energy, uh, creativity, Uh, ingenuity to treating victims of sexual assault uh, with clinical competence, with ethical integrity uh, that they do in any other area of healthcare. And, you know, I hope they will because uh, you and I can't do that. We're not clinicians, but uh, I encourage them to do that.
0: Excellent. Dr. John Burhani, thank you for joining me today on Bioethics on Air.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at j. Z-A-L-O-T at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and podcast button on the main page and then click Bioethics On Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.